would this morning turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, we'll be looking primarily at verses 4 through 7, but I'm going to read 1 through 7. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Many of you will be gathering together with meals and all those types of other things over the next couple of days. Some of you may have already celebrated an early Christmas with your family. Some of you may be celebrating later, like my family up north, uh, later this week. But what are we celebrating? Are we celebrating tradition or some kind of food celebration or opening presents or all those things? If we're Christians, we're not really celebrating something called Christmas. We're celebrating a doctrine called the incarnation of Jesus the Christ. Now, why is this doctrine so important? Well, it's because it reminds us of the purpose of why Jesus came and why it is so effective for the world, particularly those who believe upon Jesus. You see, in this portion of Galatians is the so-called Christmas message that Paul gives to the Galatians. Follow along as I read it, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In that same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We consider this reading God's word. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, let these words fall upon ears that hear and hearts that understand. Open these pathways to us that your word would be effective. For you have promised that it shall not go forth and come back void. Lord, I pray that the things that are thought here, said here, done here, would be consistent with your word or else pass away, never to be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as Christians, it's not so much about celebrating a date, is it? In fact, we're not even sure what date it was that Jesus was born. It may or may not have been December 25th. We know that the calendar was a little different back then anyway. So it's not necessarily the date that we celebrate. It's also not necessarily a holiday. Holiday, of course, is short for Holy Day. In fact, later on in chapter 4, in verse 10, it says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, it doesn't matter whether someone celebrates Christmas or not. That doesn't prove whether or not they're a Christian. Obviously, we have freedom or whether or not to celebrate this as a special day or not. In fact, we're also not even celebrating Christmas, if you know Christmas is a term that comes from other traditions or other ideas and is something that historically was not necessarily associated with the church. And of course, as Christians, I hope you're not celebrating just 
for nostalgia purposes, or because you have a tradition, and face it, all of us have traditions, whether we're keeping it this year or not. Maybe it's the tradition like I had as a boy, where you got to open one present on Christmas Eve. And of course that was after midnight, uh, because you'd gone to the candlelight service that started at 11 p.m. Maybe there's some other tradition you have. Hopefully you're not just celebrating that, and hopefully you're not celebrating because, as the movies will tell us this time of year, because you might have some kind of ethereal Christmas spirit, whatever that's supposed to be. What is it that we're celebrating? You know, we don't so much mourn the banning of Christmas. After all, if you were to live in North Korea, Kim Jong-un, the dictator, bans Christmas from his kingdom. But we do mourn the persecution of Christians and the rejection of Jesus Christ, particularly in a land that their capital city was once known as the Jerusalem of the East because there were so many believers there. We do celebrate the incarnation and we worship the risen Christ. And we stand in awe of the God of history who sent his son at just the right time. This is the phrase we saw in this particular passage. Verse 4 says, when the fullness of time had come. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we need to look at the context. That's why I read verses 1 through 3. We need to know what was the problem before the fullness of time. Then we're going to look at verse 4. Not verses 10 through 13, as it says in your outline. I forgot to change that from last week. But we're going to look at the fullness of time and then see how the fullness of time, as a result of that, what takes place. But first of all, before the fullness of time. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything. What is he talking about here? He's, he's talking here about the condition of man. The condition of man from the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden was this. They had a curse upon them. And then over history, God began to reveal his will to them. And he revealed, particularly to the time of Moses, his law. His law in the books, particularly of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, was extensive, was it not? It was not only the Ten Commandments, but it was laws about how to live with one another, how to exist as a society, how to please God in all kinds of different areas of life. And in that sense, because they were under this law and they were under a curse because every last man, woman, and child had broken that law, he says they were no better than a slave. In fact, it says in verse 2, reminds us of the context of chapter 3 here, but he, that is this child, is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. He's under the guardianship of the law. Now, what does it mean by guardianship? I think the King James language earlier in chapter 3 was schoolmaster. The idea here is this is what would take place in the Greek or Roman tradition of the time 
is if someone was wealthy and they were the heir to a fortune, then that master of the house, their father, would place them under a guardian. In fact, even though they were lord of all things, that's what it means by master or owner of everything, even though they had that right, they, in one sense, had it all. But their father, in his wisdom, would place them underneath a guardian until the time that they would inherit all the property. And so they were under this guardian like a slave. So it's almost as if they didn't have any rights or privileges. Even though they owned everything, they were master or lord of all. He says this is what we are like under the law. Man is no different than a slave. We have no rights, no privileges, because after all, when we're under that guardianship of the law, we're reminded that we must keep that law perfectly in order to inherit the wonderful gifts of heaven and eternal life. And yet, because we have broken that, and we are under that law, we're under that curse, we're under the authority of all these things, we're a slave to our sin and a slave to the law itself. That's what happens before Jesus came. And then it says this, in the same way, verse 3, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Enslaved to the world's elementary principles. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean that this is a local little school over here where we, we were under the authority of the principal of the elementary school? Well, in one sense, yes. In fact, as you read some commentators on this passage, they'll remind you that these were the Jews under what we might call the ABCs of God's will. These were the very clear things, you know, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. You shall do this or not do that. You shall have this but not have that. You shall not, and it goes on and on. These are the ABCs of God's will. God's will that tells us what he desires from us, how we can please him, how we can live a godly life. These are the ABCs. They're the easy things, aren't they? Not easy to do necessarily because we're sinners, but easy to understand. When we read the, the command earlier in the service, thou shalt not murder, we all understood what that meant, didn't we? It means you don't go out and take somebody's life unjustly. Very simple to understand. But the Gentiles, too, it could mean this. Commentators also remind us that the Galatians were made up, perhaps even majority-wise by Gentiles. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, are Gentiles by birth. These elementary principles would have been the demonic power of idols. They were pagan idol worshipers. The elementary principles of the world in that sense were these powers, these efforts, or these philosophies and ideas that suggest that there is something under which we worship or we try to please the gods of some sort. And of course, these were the things that Christ came to destroy. 
So before the fullness of time, either you were slaves to the law with no hope to fulfill the law by your own righteousness, only by faith in the coming Messiah would the Jewish people be saved. In fact, it's clear in Scripture, not all Jews were Jews, only those who believed in the coming Messiah at this particular point in time. If you were Gentiles, you were totally apart from God's will because you had no idea, no idea from your background how you could please God. But here, the fullness of time would come. You know, once in a while, my wife, Jennifer, has a, te- has a student in her fourth grade class who is so far behind academically that she has to tell the parents the only way this child has a hope to catch up and complete fourth grade level work is to go back to the basics like phonics, the ABCs. Without the ABCs and the sounds of the letters, they can't continue to read and comprehend what they're reading. In fact, the more difficult reading and everything else will be impossible if they don't know the basics. That's true not only in reading, it's true in mathematical skills. If you don't know how to multiply and divide, if you don't know how to add and subtract, you can't do the more complicated problems. But here the do's and the don'ts reveal God's will. And they're foundational, they're important for us to understand. In fact, as believers, we go back to the law, not to earn our way and please God in that way, but because we love him, we want to do what he wants us to do. But this is built upon that foundation, this fullness of time, the message of hope and reconciliation that the Son of God brings. And here is the heart of this passage, at the fullness of time. What happened when the fullness of time came? It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. But first of all, that phrase, when the fullness of time had come, what does that mean? It means it's sovereignly directed by the Father. This was God's plan. It's not as if it took God by surprise to say, oh, by the way, I think my son's coming. No, he had this plan and the fullness of time had come. Why why this particular time? Now we have all kinds of ideas or speculation. Maybe it's because there was more freedom to travel in the Roman uh, world at that time. Maybe it's because of this or that. We don't know. All we know is this was God's directed time. It was his sovereignly directed time for this momentous event. Paul is referring to the most important time period in the history of the world. I'm not going to say the most important event because the whole life and death of Jesus is so very important. This whole 30-some year period of Jesus being on earth from the time he was born until the time he rose from the dead is the most important time in the history of the world. But this sovereignly directed time by the Father for this momentous event is for this purpose that Paul writes, for the guardianship to expire. In other words, for those who were under the law and knew the ABCs of the law, yet even though they might have been heirs of the kingdom, yet they were under that guardianship of the law, unable perhaps even to understand 
how everything was to come about other than that God had promised a deliverer, a Messiah. Now this guardianship was set to expire. This is a joyful life, of the, a joyful time in the life of a young person, isn't it? When all the restrictions are cast off. And of course, at the fullness of time, what took place? God sent forth his son. First of all, sent by the Father, sent by God. Why is this so important? This tells us particularly of two doctrines regarding Jesus Christ. First of all, this indicates that the Son existed beforehand. This is the pre-existence or eternality of Jesus. Jesus didn't just suddenly appear out of thin air when he was born in Bethlehem and placed in the manger. Jesus existed from all eternity as the Son of God. Somehow that Trinitarian formula took place from all eternity, God in the persons of Father, Son, and Spirit. And here it reminds us that when he sent his Son, his Son was already in existence. And so here, the eternal Son, God sent forth. But of course, that reminds us of the other part of this. It indicates his divine nature. It wasn't like you and me in that sense. We didn't pre-exist. Once we were born, that was the beginning for us. We didn't have an eternity before we were born. God placed our soul within us at conception, and we were born, and here is our beginning. Jesus did not have that. He was divine. He had a divine nature. He, like the Father, existed from all time. He was there in the beginning. He will be there until the end. At the fullness of time, God sent his son. And then there's the next phrase, born of woman. Why is this important? Well, just as the previous phrase reminds us of the divine nature of God, so too this indicates the human nature of his son. Because he is born of woman, he has a human nature. He is like you and me. In fact, Scripture says in every way he was like you and me, except he was without sin. He has the human nature. But the other thing this does is it validates a promise that we've already read this morning, a promise of the seed. Remember back in Genesis, he said there would be the offspring or seed of the woman coming to crush the head of the serpent. And here is this seed, born of woman. It's kind of a strange way to put it normally in this context, according to the traditions of their cultural and culture and ideas. It was very man-centered. And so what they would have said is born of man. But here it says born of woman. A recognition whether Paul realizes this or not when he writes these words, a recognition of the immaculate conception, we might say, of the, the uh, wonderful virgin birth. Here it was. Unlike us in this way, he did not have a human father. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that God placed this this baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
And when he's born of woman, yes, he has a human nature. He's just like us in every way, yet without sin. Yet his birth was unusual because this was the fulfillment of the promise that this child, the seed of the woman, would come. And think about this, the fullness of time. You realize how long it was from the pages of Genesis until Galatians or until Matthew and Mark and Luke and John? We're not talking centuries here. We're talking perhaps a couple millennia here. You know, thousands of years. Imagine waiting for a promise that long to take place. Just as the Israelites waited centuries until the iniquity of the Amorites was full. This is what God promised Abraham. He said, your descendants are going to go to Egypt and be there for 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. In other words, the fullness of time for the judgment of the people in Canaan, when that time comes, I will then have your people there in the promised land. They had to wait 400 years. But this promise, this promise of the Redeemer, was not 400 years, it was a couple thousand years or more. A long, long time. But when Paul tells us and reminds us that when Jesus came, God sent his forth his son born of woman, this reminds us that God keeps his promises. And then he says also, born under the law. Born under the law. This reminds us that Jesus was born in this time period when everyone was under the law. The guardianship was still in place in that sense. Now we know that God always saves by faith. We also know that by keeping the law, no one was going to be saved. In fact, the words that Romans tells us, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one even seeks God. Those are actually quotes from the book of Psalms. We also know early in scripture, in fact, before God destroys the earth by flood, he tells us how wicked the people were. So this was nothing new. None of them could earn their way under the law. But Jesus was born under the law because like everyone else, he was required to keep the law. In fact, as individuals might try to earn their way to heaven by keeping the law and fail, Jesus was able to fulfill the requirements of the law. He was born without a sin nature because he was not ordinarily descended from Adam like others. He had no human father. He was of the spirit. And so here he was born without a sin nature and he had the ability to choose to sin or not to sin. And by God's work in his life and by his faith in the father and his commitment to follow God's will, he gloriously kept the law and he was able to fulfill the requirements of the law. In fact, you will read in the Gospels every once in a while, Jesus will say, this was to fulfill the law. In other words, he perfectly keeps the law. He is born under that law. He is the one person in the history of the entire world who actually earned his way to heaven. He actually has righteousness. 
In fact, Jesus could go up to heaven and say, Lord, here is my righteousness that earns my trip to heaven. None of the rest of us can do that. In fact, Scripture tells us very clearly our righteousness is like filthy rags. If we were to offer our righteousness to God, it would be such a wreck and a mess that God would turn his nose up at the stench of our righteousness. But here Jesus is able to fulfill the commandments of the law. He's born under the law. If he had not done this, fulfilled this, and been a perfect sacrifice, he would have saved no one. But verse 5 through 7, it reminds us of the purpose of why Jesus came. You see, we don't stop at the manger, do we? We don't stop with Jesus as a baby. Sometimes the world gets this a little messed up because they think this is such a wonderful story about a poor family who had a baby in those extremely interesting times and in their poverty they saw wonderful expressions of joy. Well, but this is the reason why he came. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. What does that mean? Well, to redeem something is to buy, to buy back or to purchase of some sort. It used to be in our society that you would have coupons that you would redeem something. And the idea was sometimes you would get these coupons and you might even send off by mail to, to redeem some prize of some sort. Here it is, a purchase price. What is the price of which this would cost? It is the very blood and body of Jesus Christ. The whole reason why he came was to die. The whole reason why he came was to have the atonement of a righteous sacrifice. That is, that he would be the one who would be the substitute taking the penalty of sin for all those who believe in him. And by believing in him, that means you repent of your sins and you believe upon Jesus Christ, and then by faith you seek to follow him. You see, the amazing thing about this, to redeem those who were under the law, the analogy that Paul gives here, this guardianship under the law and so forth, is to give freedom and power to be used responsibly in the world, both today and in the life to come. When he redeems us, it means that now we not only understand the law and the do's and the don'ts and all those other things that God's will desires for us to do or not do. It's that now he frees us from the burden of that law so that we're not doing the law in order to please him. Now we have come and understand we cannot possibly please him. Instead... We understand he came for us to die on the cross for us so that all those things we did wrong, those things we didn't do that we should do, and those things we did that we shouldn't do, all those things, remember, even one of those disqualifies us from heaven. But imagine the magnitude of all those sins upon us and the curse that is placed upon us. And under that law, now he has freed us 
by his blood and the purchase price of his atoning death on the cross so that we might have life. And then, when we come to that understanding, we repent of our sins, we believe upon Christ, we seek to follow him, then we understand he has unleashed a power within us, his Holy Spirit, that enables us to do amazing and powerful things by the proclamation of his word and a lifestyle that seeks to please the Lord. But perhaps the more amazing thing is the next purpose. You see, there's a twofold purpose. First, to redeem those who are under the law. Secondly, that we might receive adoption as sons. To give adoption to God's people. Scripture will tell us that apart from God, we have no hope. In fact, it says that apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all estranged from God, alien to him, and are far apart from him. But when Jesus came, it was for the purpose of adopting into God's family, his people. As sons with full inheritance rights. Now this is this is important here. This idea of adoption as sons. This means this, this is this is not saying anything about our, our given sex here. This is a reminder of the, the indication of the cultural understanding of inheritance at the time. It, it, whether, you, whether it was good or bad, whether it's right or wrong, whether we agree with it or not, in those days, it, were the, it was the sons who inherited the fortune. In fact, it was the firstborn son who actually inherited a double portion of the inheritance. And so when he says here, you will receive adoption as sons, he's saying it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, a child, whoever you are, if you have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the full inheritance rights as a son would in that family. And of course, the other part of this is how do we know? He says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and a son, and an heir through God. You see, to give adoption to God's people is to give it with the seal of the Spirit of Christ. Paul talks about the seal in other places. This is, this is basically the guarantee. You know how it is. When you finally get the paperwork that proves that you own something and it has all the markers on it, it has the witnesses and, and the notary publics and all that kind of stuff, then at that moment you are the official owner. This is what the Holy Spirit is. He's that guarantee, that seal, that once we have him, then we are guaranteed to have the inheritance of Christ. But the other part of this is, what does the Spirit do? We looked at that at Sunday school a few weeks ago. You know, the, the Spirit, well, what does he do? He, he teaches us the word of Christ. He, he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He does all these things. But, but the other thing here is he testifies to us about Jesus. And then Paul says this here. The Spirit in our hearts cries out, Abba, Father. 
Now, I know some of you probably have been taught that Abba means daddy and that kind of thing, but, but I think the purpose of him saying Abba Father here is not because he wants to tell us this is a term of endearment and all those other things. He's using two different languages to express the same thing. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish-Gentile audience. He's writing both the Greek, which refers back to the Hebrew word, and he's writing uh, a word that the Gentiles would know as well. So two different languages. He says it doesn't matter where you come from, whether it's this language or that language, Jewish background or Gentile background, that spirit that's placed in your heart, that spirit of Christ himself, will cry out to the Father, Father, Why? Because sons always want to have a reassurance of their father's love. I remember a recent TV show series I was watching, and it dawned on me all of a sudden that all the main characters, there were like four or five different main characters, every single one of the main characters on that show had some issue with their father. And so every once in a while there would be an issue that, or an episode that would pop up on that TV series and this character would have some problem with their father. Maybe it was that their father was too distant from them. And then another uh, character would have the same thing pop up only this father expected too much from them. Or this father was deceptive and had lied to them. Or this father here had abandoned them at a young age or whatever it was. Is it true that we all have dad complexes? I don't know. I do know this. There's a part of us, I think, that all want to be reassured of our father's love. We fathers mess up sometimes. We don't know how to give it. But this is the role of the Holy Spirit to remind us that we belong to the Father. To remind us that we would belong to the Father because he is the Spirit of Christ who testifies to us that Jesus is our Redeemer and he has purchased for us the right to be called our elder brother. And that we are now in the family of God. This Christmas message is not so that we can just go out and have good holiday cheer and say, happy, happy, joy, joy. This is so that we can tell the world, in Christ we now are part of God's family. He has purchased us and redeemed us. And all of history hinges on this lifetime of events in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, our faith does not stay at the manger. Oh, the manger is vital. Fulfilled promises the humiliation of the Son of God by becoming a son and dwelling in a land of sin when he was righteous, the humanity of Jesus, a reminder he's just like us in every way except for sin, the miraculous conception here, the virgin birth, the announcement of joy and reconciliation as the angels covered the skies proclaiming the wonderful peace of God. But this event was beyond the miraculous birth of a child. 
It was God's proclamation that the fullness of time had come. Now was the moment all history would hinge upon. Now was the moment where God's gift to the world to reconcile God and man was taking place in that baby to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons into the family of God. As you gather with your family, or perhaps as you're unable to do so because of distance or other concerns. Think about this. That family that's sitting with you right there, it may or may not be your eternal family. But in Christ, we have an eternal family with all the rights and privileges of eternal life and joy and reconciliation and forgiveness and given gifts in order to in the church, proclaim the wonders of the family of God. The fullness of time came. Let us rejoice and pray. Father, we thank you that the Son came. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you chose to come, fulfilling the purpose of the Father. And Spirit, we thank you for the reassurance we have of the love of the Father. Even, Lord, when we have messed up, that you still love us. You will pursue us. Your sheep will hear the voice of the good shepherd, and we will all dwell with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.